All right, well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in a blue pew Bible that you can find in front of you. We'd love uh, for everyone to follow along. And you can find that passage on 947. And um, yesterday was a great day at our annual church picnic. Good food and fellowship and 70 degrees and sunny doesn't hurt either. And it was, uh, so thank you for all who uh, came, especially for those who served. I know we had large teams on both setup and uh, on breakdown afterwards, and so appreciate all of you who served there. And then a couple uh, just specific shout-outs. Uh, one is a thank you to Aaron Reynolds, who supplied uh, Chick-fil-A for over 300 people uh, yesterday. And we love Aaron and his family uh, for many reasons, but being a franchise owner of Chick-fil-A is, a, is one of them. It's just, you know, it's one of them. Um, and uh, appreciate him. And, and most of all, we just want to give a special thank you to Sherry Denlinger, who orchestrated uh, the big picture of that picnic over several months and uh, pull it off flawlessly and have a whole team along with her. And so appreciate the way that she especially has used her gift as a member of this church to, to build this body in that way. All right, well, we are in the midst of a sermon series called Future Grace, and we are taking four weeks to talk about the kind of church we want to continually become in the months and years ahead. And so we have casted this vision, and the vision, um, especially in the Bible, is always a picture that God provides to his people. He gives them words, but it's a word picture. And that word picture, it sparks hope, it uh, sustains perseverance in his people, and then it provides a pathway to realize that vision. And so what we have said and will continue to say that our vision is unchanged here at Grace, really since it was planted 75 years ago on this corner. Um, But the way we communicate and articulate and provide a picture of that vision will change with uh, the times and and then hopefully again provide a pathway. And so here's something that we've kind of been revolving around of and we've read the first couple weeks and we'll do so the opening paragraph again today and it'll be up on the screen talking about future grace. We are a passionate faith community on a journey together to disrupt the suburban pursuit of comfort and complacency, rather than leading lives that are overwhelmingly busy and underwhelmingly impactful. We will raise up and deploy hundreds of people transformed by the gospel and spiritually formed in Christ for ministries of mercy and multiplication. And together, we know Christ and are equipped to make him known in the ways we commit to gather, grow, Give and go. And so across these four weeks, we are talking about this pathway of this vision of gather, grow, give and go. And you can kind of see, as there is with any pathway, there's a movement as you go along it in that the gospel shapes our gathering. It, It shapes our gathering where Christ is proclaimed and exalted, and then that gospel is brought to bear on your life, not just for Sunday, but for your entire life, every aspect of your life, and when the gospel is brought to bear on your life, you grow, and you begin to change over time as you increasingly treasure Christ and and walk with Christ. You grow, and as that gospel ministry grows us, it simultaneously equips us to give, to give that same gospel ministry to others, and so what does that look like? Here's how we worded it. Uh, Again, be on the slide. We give 
sacrificially of our time, treasure, and talents in a way that is marked by generosity for the sake of living out our callings and giftings to build up one another in the fullness of Christ, as well as address personal and systemic needs that promote human flourishing. So with that said, let's get into Romans chapter 12. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 8 this morning, but we're going to begin just with the first two verses, very well-known verses in the Bible. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. These, even just these two verses, let alone the ones we will uh, see afterwards, is one of those passages, a, a loaded passage, where to preach it in a single sermon, I have to leave a lot more out than what I'm going to leave in. But chapter 12, verse 1, marks a decisive shift in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And begins the shift with this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And many of you know what I'm about to say, but a good Bible study tip for you that I first learned from my father and have never forgotten it, that anytime you come across your Bible and you see the word, therefore, in a verse, ask yourself this question. What is therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Because whenever you see the word therefore, it is saying that what I'm about to say is building on what I just said. What you're about to hear is dependent upon what I just said. What is the therefore, therefore? And up to this point, through the first 11 chapters of Romans, we have the fullest expression of Paul's theology in the Bible. Uh, Not saying like the best or the worst, like we don't rank God's word against, uh, pit against one another in those ways in his letters. You might have a personal favorite, but there's not one that's better or worse. But Romans is the fullest expression of Paul's theology. And this letter is not just an intellectual kind of philosophical outline. It is an engaging of the mind that leads to a stirring of the heart. Paul walked the road of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, theologically rich, But when you hear that, don't think boring, don't think intellectual, don't think outdated. Because when he got to the end of that full kind of theological treatise, if you look at the end of chapter 11, if your Bibles are still open, right before chapter 12, verse 1, Paul finishes that entire section with a doxology. He busts out in worship. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Chapters 1 through 11 are the what of Scripture, or what of Romans. And then chapters 12 through 16 are the so what. So what does this mean for our lives? And then you get to verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's, here's one of the things that's so stunning about Paul. Again, he just spent 11 chapters meticulously presenting the fullest expression of his theology that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And then in verse 1, he encapsulates all of those chapters in a single phrase. Did you catch the phrase? The phrase is, by the mercies of God. What is Romans all about? 
God has been merciful to us. He has not given us what we deserve, but by his mercy, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, we are forever united with him, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Death no longer has a claim on us. The enemy cannot harm us. You who have faith in Jesus Christ have entrusted your life to him. You have nothing to fear. For nothing can separate you for the love of God. That is what the therefore is there for. The mercies of God. Romans, just like your entire Bible, is first about God. And now chapter 12, Paul turns to us. Now he turns to the church. Therefore, if you believe what I'm saying, like if you really believe the gospel, you will then live like this. For those who are taking notes, there's no kind of three-point outline this morning. And in a sense, there's a singular point to this morning's sermon that when we understand and believe the gospel, we will live by giving ourselves with full devotion. So if you are taking notes, just write that phrase. We live with full devotion devotion. Paul is very calculated with his words here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Again, if you've been around church a while, that's a common phrase because it's a common passage, but think about the phrase, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those in the city of Rome, in the church, which is a mixture of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, they are going to hear that, and they're going to immediately think of the Old Testament system of sacrifices, of sacrificing animals to the Lord. And a living sacrifice in that vein, it doesn't make sense. And Paul knows it doesn't make sense. It's a paradox. It's two words that don't go together that have been put together. To make it even display this a little bit more for us, um, we should note that sacrifice can also be translated killing. And if you fill that in, Paul just said to the church, offer yourselves as a living killing. Uh, Tim Keller, in his study of this passage, noted that Paul uh, intends to raise some eyebrows. He's not being provocative for the sake of making you know, him look a certain way, but he wants to, to stun the church in a certain sense. And also because that's exactly what the Christian life is. It is a living killing. And now that Christ has gave himself, has come and gave himself to be the ultimate sacrifice for us, our living sacrifice in response to his love for us is both like and unlike Old Testament sacrifices. It's both like them and unlike them. It's unlike them in that it's not one and done. It is a living, moment-by-moment sacrifice of your life. That every day we offer ourselves up again. We submit all things to him again. It is continual. It is perpetual. And in that way, Paul is indicating, listen, this is intense. This is intense, what we're calling you to. It's not for the faint of heart. You are moment-by-moment being a sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, there were all different kinds of sacrifices. There was on the Day of Atonement, right, the once a year, the high priest went into the most holy place. But then there were, throughout the year and throughout the weeks and months, uh, dedicatory or, or sacrifices of thanksgiving. 
And I say that because if you were here last week or heard the sermon from last week in Colossians, Paul exhorted the church to be rooted and built up in your walk with Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. A day-by-day, moment-by-moment offering of yourself, not out of duty, not out of obligation, out of thanksgiving, a living sacrifice. So in that way, it's unlike them. But in another sense, it is like the Old Testament sacrifices in that something is actually being put to death in you. When you live as a living killing, something is being put to death. You put to death primarily the thought that you have the right to choose how you get to live. You put to death the lie that you belong to yourself and that you know what's best for you. Your your proverbial hands come off the wheel. And you give all of yourself entirely to him. And that feels like a death. Especially on this side of heaven, when our attraction to our flesh and our being drawn into the world, and we're surrounded by a world that says, you do you, saying, I don't get to do me, feels like a death every single day. And I think this is perhaps more intense than it ever has been at least in recent centuries, because, again, the world's doctrine is literally the direct opposite of this. And when the world not only disagrees with you, but has a hostile reaction to the belief that you don't have a right to choose how you live, that's hard. It's going to feel even more like a death. You know, and on that note, it's interesting, the more I feel like I read history, the more I'm seeing that America in 2022 is increasingly looking a lot like Rome in the first century, more so than the America of past centuries. That I feel like we're going to continually be able to resonate with the New Testament Christians, maybe in ways that Christians have not been able to for hundreds of years. Because again, the secular doctrine of our day is built on the foundation of personal autonomy. If the church is built on the foundation of the gospel, the secular culture is built on the foundation of the personal autonomy, personal freedom. And the gospel of this culture defines freedom as being able to do what you want, believe what you want, treat others what you want, all in the name of, I'm free to be me. And so on that note, salvation according to the gospel gospel of the culture happens the moment when you fully embrace the fact that you are the premier authority over your life. That is salvation in our world. Not only does that go against, directly against God's word, but that salvation of the culture is not even true in and of itself. There is no such thing as personal autonomy. It is a myth, even if you don't believe in God. Because every person gives of themselves to something. Just like everybody worships, everybody has a God, even if they don't call it a God. Everyone gives of their lives to something. It's whatever the thing is that they need most for their self-worth. And perhaps that's success or a certain status or sex or money, 
or even things that we would consider good gifts like those things, and a spouse and children. It's the thing that I look to for my ultimate self-worth. It's the thing that all other things in my life submit to. When push comes to shove, what's at the top? That's your God. And you're not free from that. You are beholden to that, whatever that is. It takes precedence over everything you do in your day-to-day life. It's the driving force. And so if everyone gives themselves to something, the question is not if you do, but what is it that you are giving yourself fully to? This is why Paul then immediately says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the gods of this world. Do not give yourself to the gods of this world, but give yourself to the true gospel, which when the Spirit reveals to you that true freedom is when you submit your life entirely to God, who gave himself for you. And this full devotion is a daily living sacrifice of our bodies, but then Paul also connects it with our mind. Look again at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and right. This is a verse that, uh, again, I know many of you are familiar with, but did you ever notice what this verse represents in the context of Romans as a whole? Did you ever notice the great reversal that this verse indicates? In chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but Paul, in chapter 1 of Romans, detailed the problem that's within all of us. Regardless of our ethnic, religious, or socioeconomic background, the problem we all have is the same at the core, that we have turned our back on God that we have denied him. And Paul says, we are without excuse. But here's how he worded it. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. At our core, we became futile in our thinking, which led to being handed over to the dishonoring of our bodies. But now, Paul says we are called, therefore, and we are empowered to offer our bodies living sacrifices, number one, and now be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And if you read that in chapter 1 and you read that in chapter 12, you ask, how? How is that possible? What happened between chapter 1 and chapter 12? The mercies of God. God has been merciful to us. And they were revealed. And so Paul says, those who truly experience the grace of God and believe this will, with full devotion, give of themselves mind and body to the glory of God. We hold nothing back. Hear me, we don't save some in the tank just in case. 
We give all of our minds and bodies to him. Um, so my brother, uh, who coaches and is a partial owner of CrossFit Bison in Midland Park, he will often tell his classes uh, that he coaches uh, that the optimal goal of a workout, and whether you do CrossFit or any other fitness, you know, I think you can resonate with this, the optimal goal of a workout is this, is that when you get to the end, one, you get to the end, and two, you don't leave anything in the tank. Meaning, you don't want to go so fast and burn yourself out and not be able to finish. But also, you don't want to get to the end of a workout and realize, I could have done more. I held too much in the tank. I could have given more of myself there. Uh, If you think about it in the context of a marathon, maybe that's easy to understand. Uh, You don't want to go out so hard out of the gate, adrenaline's running, that by mile 15, you're out. Can't run, can't walk, and you can't finish. But you also, in all that training, don't want to get to the end of 26.2 miles and cross the finish line and go, I got more in me. I could have gone harder. The optimal goal of a workout is to get to the end and to not leave anything in the tank. Paul is urging Christians to live your life in such a way where you get to the end by the grace of God and you don't leave any in the tank. You pour yourself out for the kingdom. You got one life, and you work hard, and you go to bed tired at the end of the day, and then you rest well, and you wake up, and you do it again tomorrow. And you don't do that for your own pride. You don't do that to put weight on yourself. You don't do that to prove your salvation. You do that, recalling back to last week again, that we toil and we work hard with his energy. And when you're working with his energy, energy, You can work hard, and then you can rest well, and you can do it again tomorrow. That when the gospel gets applied to our minds and our bodies, we can continually pour ourselves out because of his mercies that have been poured out on us. Can I ask you, are you willing to live this way? To give all of you, all your energy, your your influence, your platform, your resources, your thoughts, your desires, will you give all of you to him? I fear that that approach to the Christian life that is willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world for the sake of Christ has been replaced by a moderate, middle-road approach to Christianity, where someone can claim Christ and profess Christ, but want to do it in such a way, and certainly live in such a way that will also gain as much acceptance and respect from the world as possible. I remember my senior year down at TCNJ, uh, at the time I was co-leading an athlete Bible study, and over the course of the year, we had a pretty sizable group uh, from multiple teams and sports at the college who were coming to this study on Tuesday night, to the point where I was in the weight room once, and some people were talking about the fact that so many people are choosing uh, at 8 o'clock at night to go to the student center to study the Bible together, and there was one guy on the football team uh, who will remain unnamed. Um, he said, you know, you know, Aaron, I, I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. I'm just not like a radical one. Like, I, I believe, man. Like, I'm in. I just don't need to be like all in with everything. And he said, I, I'm a normal Christian. 
I'm a chill Christian. And I don't know, man. I read Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I see no chill. Paul said, be a living killing. That doesn't feel normal. And a moderate kind of in Christianity, I fear, is really no Christianity at all. There's a woman named Jenny Allen. She does a small group study in 1 Corinthians that our grace group actually began this past week. And in that first session, she said that the problem with many people in the city of Corinth is a problem that still rings true today. And it, with this sermon in mind, this line stuck with me. She said, quote, They decided how God could be good for them rather than how they can be poured out for God. A moderate, chill Christian tries to decide, how can God be good for me? How can he help build my kingdom? How can he increase my influence rather than how can I pour myself out for him because he's already given it all to me? Well, most sermons on this passage, I think, usually stop with uh, verse 2, but I think it's worth seeing where Paul goes immediately after this. So if you have your Bibles open, let's go back to Romans 12, and now we're going to read verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. From here, Paul is going to spend the next three chapters in Romans providing the markers of one who is devoting their whole bodies and minds to God. What does that actually look like? in day-to-day life, and he starts with ones thinking of themselves and their own gifting that is given to them to build up others in the church. In other words, the gospel equips you to be honest about yourself, to be honest in your own self-assessment. And a marker that you understand the gospel is that you will not think too highly or too lowly of yourself. Think about this with me. If you are someone who, for various reasons, are prone to think too lowly of yourself, that you're perhaps damaged goods, that you have nothing to offer, that I I can't help anyone, I don't have the answers, I'm, I'm of little worth to my family, it can barely be worth to my family, let alone my friends, let alone my church, and building God's kingdom, The gospel raises you up when rightfully understood, saying that the spirit of the living God lives in you and empowers you to glorify his name and to play a part in the way he has uniquely gifted you in building his kingdom here. On the other hand, if you are prone to think too highly of yourself, people need me, I'm pretty gifted. I'm a key piece to making things go around here. 
I am the answer, or I tend to have the answer to everything, starting with my family and my friends, surely my workplace and my church. And God needs me to build his kingdom here. The gospel, when rightly understood, it brings you down to earth. You are dependent wholly on him. You were dead. You were without hope, no pulse, until the mercies of God came to you from the outside of you and then dwelled within you as a free gift, not as an earned reward. So so where does the gospel leave us? If we can't think too highly of ourselves, we also can't think too lowly of ourselves. It leaves us with honest self-assessment, as Paul is talking about, a posture of humble confidence. You are humble in self, confident in him, and from there we are free and comfortable in our own skin. Not having to constantly compare to others, especially in the church, and the way God has gifted you, or the capacity or competency God has gifted you. It's not a comparison game. But rather than comparing, you can now enter into partnering. Partnering with others in the church who are different from you to carry out our mission here. Which leads into Paul's exhortation to the church related to giftings and how to use them. And this passage provides two truths as it relates to spiritual gifts. The first is personal and the second is communal. The first is everyone has one. And the second is, everyone has a different one. Two truths about spiritual gifts. One, everyone has one. And number two, everyone has a different one. So starting with everyone has one, you cannot think too lowly of yourself because, again, God himself has given you a gift. First and foremost, the gift we share is the gift of faith for those who believe. Saving faith. Faith is first a gift. Secondly, and vitally, he gave you a spiritual gift to strengthen others in their faith with. You know, according to the latest U.S. Bureau of Labor, the unemployment rate in the United States stands at 3.7%, meaning about four out of every hundred of participating adults are out of a job today. They want a job, they're looking for a job, they do not have a job. They are disconnected from the workforce. They are not contributing to the workforce. They are not receiving wages for working. What this verse says is that in the church, the unemployment rate should be zero. Here's the good news. Everyone is qualified. And everyone has a job offer. And everyone is called to be connected. Because again, from the top, those who receive gospel ministry and grow through the church are also, at the same time, equipped to give gospel ministry to the church. Uh, Referencing uh, Sherry Denlinger, who ran the um, picnic, uh, I I can't recall what the context was as she was sharing this line that she had heard from somewhere else, but she said the, the key, the turning point of a person in the life of a church is when they go from becoming a consumer to a co-worker. And she obviously models that well as a member here. That when I primarily think of my church, I'm not thinking about uh, people I get something from, but people I work with. When church to you goes from becoming a consumer to a co-worker, the unemployment rate should be zero. So everyone has one, but then, secondly, everyone has a different one. Therefore, you can't think too highly of yourself 
Because other people have giftings and measure of giftings you don't have. And the members of this church are not merely numbers on a page. Every member of this church is uniquely made, uniquely gifted. And even those who might have the same gifts have a different measure of that gift, Paul says. So that they are a totally unique individual in doing the kind of things that others can't do. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, Paul writes, so we are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. You find any two people in the world, and you put them side by side, and they are not identical. Everybody has a different embodied physical DNA created by God. And Paul's saying that is the same for all believers in their spiritual DNA. That you put any two together, and they're not identical. But together they are commissioned to use that faith and use that gift to build up others. So when a believer is disconnected from the church, there's a double harm here. One, they are not benefiting from the giftings of others that they don't have themselves. But two, the church is not benefiting from them and their gifting that is unique to them. It's a double harm. And while I understand why some people really struggle with a church due to past trauma, due to past abuse, due to things that they've seen or experienced in themselves or loved ones that have come from the church, and the church has to own up to that, I do not understand the approach to saying, I don't need the church as a believer. Those who would say, I'm good on my walk, I'm fine. At its core, that is self-deception. The Bible says you're not good on your own. And the church is not as good as it can be without you. So don't think too highly of yourself, but don't think too lowly of yourself. Rather, by the renewal of your mind, be honest in your self-assessment of what you need and what others need from you. All right, so let's now tie this together with why we are focusing on this as part of our series, Future Grace. What do we mean when we say that 10 years from now, if Grace Church is still operating and the Lord has not returned, that we yearn to increasingly be able to give an an honest self-assessment of ourselves in a church in this way? And again, um, we'll put this uh, slide up on the screen Um, the the second slide that we saw, uh, we give sacrificially of our time, treasure, and talents in a way that is marked by generosity for the sake of living out our callings and giftings to build up one another in the fullness of Christ as well as address personal and systemic needs that promote human flourishing. That is a brief paragraph to say it is a, took a little bit longer time to formulate, but it is explosive if that is lived out. Simple to say, but if true, that's big. For the church, for Grace Church. Because that displays a church that doesn't think of itself more highly than it ought to. For we are merely playing a small part of God's grand story of the church across the world. But that also displays a church that does not think more lowly of itself than it ought to. For we are the bride of Christ. We have been purchased by the price of God's Son who shed his blood on the cross for us. Therefore, 
we give of ourselves. And you notice in these words, Paul is not commanding the church. This is not a command, it's an appeal. Paul is saying, if you grasp what Jesus has done, he wants so deeply for the church and for individuals to grasp what Jesus has done for you. Offering himself, body and soul, presented on a cross for us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to make peace with God for us. He says, then it is fitting, church. It is reasonable. It is a privilege to offer our entire selves back to him. And as we look at the grand kind of scope of the world right now, we can affirm that Christians are not the only ones in the world who sacrifice their time, treasure, and talent for the good of others. We affirm that God providentially oversees and uses people from everywhere to care for others and give to the poor. We're not the only ones. It's called common grace. God's common grace on this world of using people to help others. And we ought to be grateful for that and affirm it where we see it. But the Bible does say that Christians are the only ones who do it with the deepest motivation, who have the direct, ultimate power to do so, the Spirit of God in you for the glory of God. No one has that motivation but us. So the more the gospel is implanted in us, the more it is brought to bear on our whole selves, we will no longer ask the question, God, how much do I have to give? But it will turn to, God, how much can I give? And when you think about it through those lens, and you think about treasure and money, what is it? What is it in this world except as a means to further God's kingdom and proclaim God's name while we still can? You think about time, what is time except another opportunity to live for today, for that is all that is guaranteed all of us, and to pour ourselves out to make disciples of all nations and go to bed tired tonight. And talent, what is your talent except the pipeline through which God's grace flows from us to others? Not as a comparison with others, but in partnership with others in the church to accomplish the same aim, a church that knows Christ and a church that makes him known. And so I'm going to close by showing that this truth can be simple, that we give all of ourselves, but it's not easy. But it is simple. It is simple for children to understand, but deep enough to be explored our entire lives. And here's the example. Uh, there's something called the New City Catechism that several of our families have done at Grace and Megan has promoted, and we've gone through it with our kids a couple of times. And the first question of the New City Catechism is this. What is our only hope in life and death? To where children can memorize it. What is our only hope in life and death? The answer is that we are not our own but we belong to God. Body and soul, both in life and death, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Grace Church, how much of ourselves are we willing to give? Let it be true of us that we leave nothing in the tank. Let it be true of us that we see the potential of this church in this place at this time that we have been given as a Christ-centered community. And if we don't waste it, if we don't waste our chance, we will not fall victim to being a church that is molded by the world, 
but we will see by God's grace a world that is molded by the church. Let's give it all. Let's pray. Father, we yearn to understand more of you, Lord, to understand more of what you have done and gave for us. And Lord, we yearn that when we get to the end of our lives, Lord, whether that is today or decades from now, that we would be able to say we gave it all. We gave it all because we got it all. Lord, let let that be true of us individually, but let that be true of us as a church. Let us each take the responsibility to understand and look at our lives and our mission fields and understand where are we giving of ourselves, Lord, for our joy, for your glory, and for the good of this world. Thank you for this reminder. We thank you for your word and pray that you would guide us in knowing and affirming that this is not just us that works, but it is you who works in and through us. Let it be true, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond in song before we take the Lord's Supper.